you actually don't need to get paid as much money as you think you do. Do the job or at least be on the career path of the job that you would do for free. And I got just as much enjoyment from getting paid $24,000 as a specialist doing push-ups in Fort Benning, Georgia, because I knew it was on the path to where I wanted to be, as I have from jobs where, it, I, you know, that hasn't been the case. So do that. Like, do, do the thing that you would do for free. Welcome to the Driver Force Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Chase Rosa, a former private equity analyst turned performance coach to founder CEOs, and avid Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and obstacle course race athlete. This podcast will feature conversations with uniquely driven and authentic individuals across sports, business, and wellness who continue to achieve great things in their respective fields. By presenting their stories, uncensored and uncut, I hope to inspire you to take a step back, look within, and evaluate your path and journey. Today's guest is Alex Harstrick. Alex is a principal at Shields Capital, where he leads investments in ambitious entrepreneurs looking to make positive disruption in the future of healthcare. Alex is very passionate about innovation and investment in healthcare and defense, two industries he has personal experience in. Prior to Shields Capital, he worked at Blue Cross Blue Shield, where he helped manage their multi-stage venture portfolio and develop their internal strategy function. During this time, he also received a commission as a military intelligence officer in the U.S. Army Reserve, leading soldiers trained in counterintelligence and human intelligence operations. Upon his return from deployment on a special operations mission in the Middle East, Alex was then recruited to work at the Defense Innovation Unit. There, he worked on the human systems portfolio, where he focused on human performance and what was going on to the actual bodies of military personnel. I should also mention that in the weeks following our conversation, Alex secured a partnership with the CEO of Aura Ring to advise the company's expansion into the healthcare and defense markets. In this interview, we get into Alex's karate background, how the death of his mother shifted his reality and mindset, his college years, and the various jobs he's had over his career so far. And so, without further ado, my interview with Alex Harstrick. So, so let's start at the beginning here. Uh, where did you grow up? I'm originally from Los Angeles, California, uh, actually in a small suburb called uh, Altadena, which is uh, just above Pasadena. Okay. They're pretty much your whole childhood and kind of high school and all that spent in LA. Uh, you know, I, I would divide adolescence, I think, into two critical periods for me. Um, one was uh, my mother passed away when I was very young and, uh, and that was a pretty, uh, uh, significant shift for me. Yeah. So up until the age of 10, I lived in Southern California. Uh, uh, after that period, my dad was a consultant and, uh, moved around a lot. And, uh, so I would go visit him in Northern California where he had kind of established his home base, but would spend a pretty significant amount of time in Los Angeles sort of with my brother. Uh, and then eventually I was uh, able to get into a, a, a pretty prestigious prep school in the Bay area. Uh, and I went to move there when I was about 13 uh, and then sort of uh, lived with my brother during that period. He eventually came up to the same school uh, and we sort of took care of each other during school. And then I, I went to college at Columbia university when I was 17. Okay. And if you, if you don't mind me asking, how did, how did your mother die? 
uh, she had breast and ovarian cancer. Uh, she had originally beat it and uh, uh, it came back. Uh, she went into remission and then eventually it sort of came roaring back. And it was actually in a period on uh, Chase uh, uh, of about three days from where she was completely fine. And I remember visiting her at, uh, in the hospital at Cedar sinai to, to the period where she would eventually pass away. Uh, an incredibly, impossibly fast period of time. Wow, I'm, I'm so sorry. It was, uh, it was awful. Um, I would say it is the, uh, of all the things that have happened to me by far the worst thing that has ever happened to me. Um, and um, yeah, it, uh, I, I think the problem was there is a sense of immortality when you're a child that makes being a child being a child. Mm -hmm. And uh, kids who lose parents, I think, lose that pretty quickly. I think in, in the long run, that may be a beneficial thing. In the short run, it's, uh, it's certainly a lot of suffering. Right, right, yeah. And so I noticed that look, from your background that you, you served in the military as an intel officer. Did you grow up in a military family? Was that like a big part of growing up? Uh, no, actually. So I, uh, my dad is a German immigrant, uh, came to the United States, got his citizenship, uh, my mother is uh, second generation Greek. They spoke Greek at home. I think outside of the fact that, that my grandfather was a, an optometrist who also did a lot of work with the military, um, uh, not really a, a military family at all. But coming from two effectively immigrant parents, uh, they have a very profound appreciation for the United States and I think service within the United States. And, and that was more of the broad uh, uh, compulsion to join. Interesting. And so when did, when did that sort of interest really start to, uh, I guess, grow in you? Well, so uh, when I was going to the, the school in, in the Bay Area, it's a, a great school called Sacred Heart Prep. Uh, our, our, our largest claim to fame outside of the fantastic alumni is uh, the book Billion Dollar Coach about Billy, uh, 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 Bill Campbell. The okay. beginning scene takes place at Sacred Heart Prep. I think it's just an amazing aggregator of really fascinating people. I still have a lot of good friends from there. Um, the institution, I think, though, skewed me towards more traditional barometers for going to good schools. So I originally wanted to go to West Point or the Naval Academy and spent my junior summer doing these programs where you would go and you would, uh, 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 it's called service, I forget exactly what it's called, SLS, but basically you're a junior and you're playing cadet for about a week so you can kind of understand it. I absolutely loved it. And then I made the very intelligent decision that most 17 year olds would make, which is I want to party during school and I want like a normal uh, kind <laughs> of uh, college experience. And so right. uh, walked away from West Point, went to Columbia, which was a fantastic institution, but at the time was a far cry away from being uh, super passionate about the military, I would say. And, uh, and honestly, Chase, like that whole thread basically came down to getting into a lot of different things that I felt I should do and not necessarily the things that I wanted to do. So uh, right after school, I, I became a consultant. Nobody's ever going to argue with you to, if you become a consultant at, at a good right. firm. Uh, right. Uh, it, it was the job that I just figured I could tell everyone I, I did that job. Uh, you know, eventually I think consulting was not exactly what I, what I wanted it to be. And so I did corporate strategy at Blue Cross Blue Shield, 
which again, I thought was sort of the logical extension of what I should do. Everyone in consulting is like, that's what you do. You come out and then you're an internal strategist or you do one of these other jobs. Uh, I know you worked in private equity, for example, another right. really good exit point. I didn't have that same kind of understanding of all the different things in business. So it's very much going with the flow. And, uh, and it basically came to a head when I was living in New Jersey doing corporate strategy. I saw people coming in and out of work. Uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield is a fantastic company. It definitely skews towards people, I think, who are going to be a lot more solid in their career and looking for a single place to work. And that simply was not the mindset that I had. And uh, there was this sort of internal frustration that I had that I was not doing the things that I should that that I should be doing, or excuse me, that I wanted to do, mm-hmm. but rather the things that I felt were very easily explainable to other people. Um, so I had a very frank discussion with my boss at the time, uh, left Blue Cross Blue Shield and uh, joined the army as a reservist. But if you're a little late to the game, then you do basic training. So I went down to Fort Benning, Georgia, officer candidate school. Uh, I had a period where I went back to Blue Cross Blue Shield and then eventually I went out to Fort Huachuca, Arizona for school. Okay, got it. And I appreciate your your openness and candor around going down the path of what you think you should do versus want to do. That's something I'm struggling with kind of right now currently. And especially when I left private equity, uh, first instinct was to go down the path of what I should do after PE. So like corporate development, maybe go an earlier stage like venture capital or, or like business strategy. So uh, it's definitely, I just, it's nice to know that other people also kind of struggle with that, what they should do versus what they want to do. No, no question, man. And I mean, the, uh, the, the matchstick for all of this was actually an article written by a man. I may butcher his last name, Bill Dershowitz, uh, that was called Solitude and Leadership. And I think it was based off of a either 2011 or 2007 commencement speech at West Point. And the big piece that he talked about was basically not being sort of, uh, again, I'm, I'm going to, uh, not properly paraphrase this, but I'll give an attempt. Uh, exactly what we're talking about here is focusing on the, the things that you feel that you're being put on this earth to do. And the only way that you can do that is by distancing yourself from all of the noise in society and doing all of the different things that people are going to basically applaud you for at cocktail parties versus the kind of things right. that you are going to be proud of yourself for, uh, you know, when, when you can no longer do anything. So, Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And so uh, one thing that's interesting about your background uh, and something I'm very interested in is uh, your background in karate. So when did you start doing karate? <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I, I appreciate the interest there. The story is far less, um, I think, uh, uh, good for me than I would like to say. I actually spent about two years watching my brother do karate. So he would go, and I honestly, Chase, was afraid of getting hit. So the instructors would come and they would invite me. And I, I mean, I was like six years old at the time, so cut me some slack. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, I, I never wanted to go in because I just didn't want to get punched in the face. I, you know, I didn't want to get kicked or something. So I would go and I would watch my brother practice karate. And then, and this, by the way, was a big trend that I had for the first ten years of my life. Was my brother was the big bold one. He was going out and doing all the things. If we were ever in an unfamiliar environment, my brother would go make friends, and then he would invite me along. Uh, you know, after my mom passed away, I think a lot of that shifted. But 
so I watched my brother do karate for the longest time. And then eventually I was uh, uh, one of the instructors, a man named Robert Robertson, who is also an English professor at Pasadena City College, uh, invited me to, you know, come onto the mat, whatever. I mean, he, he put it in like a very uh, intellectual way that, that only Robert could basically communicate, which is okay. what made him such a compelling instructor. Uh, uh, and I think honestly what happened was I got punched in the face. It was like five minutes in and I, I mean, I like clocked and I don't mean punched in the face. Like <laughs> maybe I got punched in the face. I mean, like I was on my back and, uh, and after that, knowing that everything was fine and that I could get back up and that I could learn how not to get punched in the face. Like, I think I, I was hooked after that. Right. And I, I would say broadly, if you're ever going to, or if anyone's ever going to like write my life story, I would hope that like that piece is basically the introduction. Cause it basically tells all of the different aspects after that. Interesting. So what, what style of karate did you do? Uh, Ken Po karate, which is okay. a pretty like, Americanized version yep. founded by Ed Parker, I believe. Mm -hmm. Okay. Got it. And so I'm sure as you know, what ends up happening a lot of the time with karate is with kids who start doing it is that they may do it for a year or two. And then as they get older, they transition out and focus on another sport kind of never to come back to it after. So what, what made you stick to it? kind of for all those years? I really loved the discipline of the sport. It's not just like your ability to go run, you know, and who cares what you're looking like while you're running. It's, it's not only exercise, it's technique, philosophy. And, and honestly, that tie with my instructor, Robert, like I'd be remiss if I said that I could just do, you know, work with anyone. He was very much invested in me as a student, which is difficult to say. I mean, taking a step back, I thought that karate classes were like a public utility, uh, not knowing how privileged one I was to be there and two, that this is just not something everybody does. And he was extremely helpful in sort of keeping me tethered. And, um, and I think as I grew older, where a lot of instructors fail is that they're selling this product, which is karate, right? Which can be a little gimmicky. And he was really good at tailoring it towards basically like what I would need to see to remain compelled. And, and honestly, like I, I was very fortunate. I was sponsored by two companies when I was in high school to do karate. There's nothing better than getting paid to do the thing that you were basically paying to do uh, or would do for free. Right. Um, but Robert was really, really helpful in helping me kind of see the uh, uh the forest through the trees that no matter what was happening like this is really what we were focusing on and it wasn't being good at karate it was being a good person and i think it's really important to have that kind of tie into anything that you're doing yeah yeah i would agree with that so did you compete in both kata and sparring yeah yeah loosely so though i i i i I don't know if I'm going to impress anyone, Jay's, with just my abilities to do performance <laughs> in the competitions. But certainly, my uh, desire to compete was strong. But um, you know, ultimately, it, it, it's tough to go to all these things. Someone's got to drive you there. Like my dad was traveling around a lot. Like you know, I, it 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 became kind of a burden. And so eventually, it just it was easier to do things that were more typical. So I fell into you know the like regular stuff that, that boys do in, in most boys do in high school, right? Football, sure. Uh, sure. track, all that stuff. So, right. Right. What are some of the, and you probably might've alluded to this before, but some of the biggest lessons you learned or, or takeaways from practicing karate for all those years? 
Um, that's a good question. I, I think the discipline part was probably the largest that I, that I could say, you know, without any argument for anyone else. I think the broader piece was anything worth doing is worth doing badly. And I'll explain that because yeah. it's a weird thing, but, um, uh, I would practice karate every morning when, I, uh, you know, even as like a sixth grader, which now looking back at it, it didn't seem weird at the time, but if I saw a sixth grader sort of getting up and practicing karate at six, you know, excuse me, like early in the morning, I would probably be like, wow, that seems odd. Um, what I learned was it didn't matter if I was able to do 30 minutes of practice a day or five minutes of practice a day. The fact that I could do practice every single day over something that I cared about was the only thing, the driving force, if you will, behind sure. that effort. Like you should care enough to do anything. And that there was never in my mind that sort of excuse of like, well, I don't really want to do this. If I didn't want to do it for one day, then I shouldn't do it for any day. And at some level, like I knew that that philosophy was transcendent. So it made sense to keep doing. Right. Okay. Got it. And on top of that, do you think there are any as are there any aspects or concepts from karate that you've applied or you think translate well to business and serving the military? I mean, obviously that dis discipline is, is huge, but any, maybe anything else? I, I think that same piece, which is anything worth doing, worth doing poorly, don't, frankly, don't do a job that you wouldn't do for free. Now, uh, I acknowledge that that is a very privileged way of thinking because a lot of people have to do jobs that they can't not do for free, right? And it's, um, right. Uh, I understand that. But I think broadly speaking in life, like uh, freedom to me is not not working. I hope to never retire. Freedom to me is ever doing a job that I don't want to do. and when you see that when you're a, a, a kid doing karate and like I said, like this kind of sport that to many people seems sort of odd, but you get a lot of value from like that, that has basically extrapolated to all the other aspects in my life of thinking about like, you know, well, do it because you want to do it, not because you have to do it. And, and I actually think that that barrier is a lot lower than people give it credit for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so let's move or move back to, to college. Um, so you said you went to college at Columbia in New York. Did you enjoy your overall time there? Oh yeah, it, it was awesome, Chase, honestly. Like <laughs> Columbia is a fantastic institution. Uh, I actually went there wanting to be pre-med, yet another symptom of this whole thinking that I need to do the thing that is like really easy to brag about at cocktail parties. Right. Um, I was not a great student. Like the, the first semester was tough. So I, I was a recruited athlete. I had lost a ton of weight. Uh, in order to sort of keep up with a D1 sport. I was also doing pre-med curriculum. It wasn't like, uh, you know, I was this incredible student coming into it. I don't know what I thought was going to happen. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it was actually sort of right at like the precipice of giving up. The now Dean of Students, a man named D, uh, uh, James Valentini, we all call him Dean Tini, was then a uh, chemistry professor. And he was my general chemistry professor. Everybody else flies through this class. I was the one guy that thought that you were still supposed to go and talk to the teacher if you needed help on your homework, which in college at this level was just sort of, a, again, a ridiculous concept. But okay. he was so kind to me. He would hold extended office hours. We would not only talk about uh, what what we were doing in class, but sort of what was going on in life. And I mean, he would, he would be incredibly generous with both his time, uh, all, you know, all of the effort that he put into it. And that really helped me kind of like get my footing 
at Columbia. And from then uh, I joined the school's ambulance corps. I would eventually be its director, oversaw a pretty large expansion of the ambulance service. But that all basically spawned from this piece of like one, wanting to help people broadly. But I would, I would caution anyone to spend time with anyone who says that they don't want to help people. Uh, right. <laughs> but wanting to do it in a way that I felt I best contributed back to the campus because I felt allegiance to that campus, allegiance, excuse me, because of what uh, James Valentini gave to me. Right. Interesting. And what was the sport that you played? Uh, I was a rower. rower. So I think okay. to, to call it play may be an overstatement, more uh, endured. Endured, yeah, yeah. That's a good word for it. Um, so on top of you know, studying at a really rigorous school, you're also involved in quite a bit outside of school work, like working as the director at the emergency medical service, um, being on a division one sports team and some other extra extracurriculars. How did you manage it all? Um, that, that's a good question. I, so I think that the best way to look at it is empirically and just based on like my GPA over when I was most involved in things and when I was least. Uh -huh. uh, when I was taking 23 credits, my GPA was pretty good. And uh, uh, I, I graduated early, which was a fortunate thing to have happen because it certainly saves a lot of tuition when you don't have to go to school. And, uh, uh, but the second semester was sort of this coast semester. I took the minimum amount of requirements because I, I think that's all I was allowed to do it by that point. And I got my second worst GPA next to that for, sort of first transition semester where I had, had no idea what I was doing. Um, <laughs> And so I think that that was like a pretty good life lesson that it pays to be busier. Um, one of the things that, that uh, my dad had told me during that time was, you know, and if you need something done, ask a busy person to do it. And it was much easier to prioritize 100 tasks than it was to prioritize 10, because there's always an excuse that there would be more time in the day to get those 10 done versus 100 where you have to be focused from minute one. And uh, that was another really good lesson. From there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Why do you think that worked for you? I think back to that piece about watching my mother pass away and understanding the, in, you know, just the fact that life has a timer. Back to even practicing karate in the morning, that all happened after my mom passed away. That was all, uh, um, I think that was integral to all of these all of these other things that you see that that was really kind of like the the uh, uh, the the origin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you majored in political science and Spanish. Is that right? Yes, that's right. What was the what was your intention behind <clears throat> behind that double major? Uh, political science was just kind of interesting because I think broadly speaking, I like politics. Uh, you know, reading, but I wasn't really that into like fiction so english was kind of out uh i'm sure columbia has another name for it that's not english because um the uh, and then from the spanish point of view my so the, the master plan chase was actually uh, i knew i was never going to cut it in pre-med at columbia like the kids there are incredibly talented and they just had such a leg up from the uh, uh scientific point of view so mm -hmm. i was going to finish out school i was going to graduate early and then i was going to go into a post-bac pre-med program and i was going to do something where i could be a little bit more focused on that so i figured i wanted to work in uh, uh hispanic communities so being better at spanish was something really important and coming from los angeles right. that was just like a, a natural uh, uh outgrowth 
because so many people were, you know, Mexican American or uh, from other like Latin American countries. Got it. But you end up doing consulting at Booze and Company. I mean, that's exactly <laughs> it, right? Like, I, I, I think what I learned was like, I just wouldn't be that good of a doctor. I didn't know. I, I, I think the passion was more about wanting to sort of be in that position to like be into the decision maker to kind of like be the guy who would have helped or the, or, or the woman who would have helped my mom in that time when she was at her lowest. Uh, and, but I didn't stop to think like, maybe I was never supposed to be that person. Maybe there was somewhere else along the line. I could, I could interject myself. I see. Okay. And so when you get to, um, your consulting role, what was your day to day? Like, is it just a lot of kind of putting presentations together and a lot of slide decks and, and all of that? <laughs> yeah. You, you know, the drill, it was exactly that. Um, I think consulting is a great place to get started in your career. But again, I felt like a little behind the curve. Uh, for example, we would have like office meetings and there would be chairs laid out. And I thought that everybody should pick up a chair and put it back. Not knowing that like those are billable hours and that like everybody went immediately to their job and that there was someone else who was going to pick up the chairs. Now, now I, I would say, um, Broadly, like that always kind of rubbed me the wrong way. I don't really care like where you are in the organizational hierarchy. Like I think that you should pick up after yourself and, and be right. invested in there. But, but there is a mindset associated with that that I think made uh, other people thrive in that environment better than I did. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I did not appreciate was that when you're consulting, you're in, the, in a situation that I saw which by the way is one person's experience at one point in time at one firm and is in probably no way uh, indicative of everyone's experience at every firm. But I was very much in an advisory capacity, but I was sold on a solving capacity. And really a consultant's job is to help you see things from a different perspective, but to also understand that it is not their job to solve those problems. And I never would have been exceptional at that. at the at the at the problem solving piece uh at, at the strictly advisory capacity oh okay like, the other piece okay because if you're cut off at the point where it's like okay come on in and like do it get your hands dirty that always felt a little dissatisfying uh, i think it's a very important job i have like nothing against consultants but but from what i expected from the job versus what i was getting like it wasn't that you're right it was a lot of putting together slide decks like doing this kind of like depth of thinking things like that Again, right. important work, not the mm -hmm. work that I think I should have been doing, the work I was doing because nobody's going to say you're a screw up if you're working at a consulting firm. Right. right, right. And so after that, here's kind of the, the interesting jump that you take. So you join Blue Cross Blue Shield and shortly thereafter, or maybe around the same time, you get commissioned as a military intelligence officer in the U.S. Army Reserve. Is that right? Yeah, I, I had to take sabbatical from Blue Cross Blue Shield in order to do that. So, uh, okay. you know, that was invaluable. I worked at Blue Cross Blue Shield for about a year. It was uh, uh, the group I was in was a, was a strategic initiatives group. We were at the founding of the organization trying to figure out what it was that we were doing. But I mean, Chase, like I, at this point, I would have been, what, 23? Yeah, I was 23. And, uh, and, and like I said, like it, it was just sort of a different mind state to where I was. Because that organization, 
um, and, and, and sort of like culturally within it is more oriented, I think, towards people that, that sort of want to maintain like that level of security. It's an insurance company. Like by definition, its job is to reduce risk. And at 23, I just wanted to like throw myself through a wall to see what it felt like. (laughs) Um, And so I had this conversation, like I said, with management there who um, uh, was largely supportive about my intent to join the Army Reserve. And then I went and uh, and I remember day one of basic training, you go to uh, first you you go into uh, uh, like a reception battalion. So it's like pre-basic training they give you a uniform they do all this stuff and i remember when they shaved my head and and i was just standing in line of like a bunch of people like no one who i had known before no one was talking to each other we're all sitting there and it was like right out of you know uh, uh, of a movie and i was like oh my god like what am i doing here <laughs> um and it was uh there has not been a day chase that I have put on a military uniform. That was not an excellent day. I have loved every minute of being in the military. That's awesome. So I guess was, so was your role as a military intelligence officer in the army reserve, a daily commitment? No, it, it was really, much, I mean, so the, the reserves basically sells you on this concept of it being like once a month, but as an officer, your job is to be pretty involved. So I, I guess it, it is a daily commitment. I mean, uh, I, but it's not like I have to be somewhere every day. I just need to be sort of present in my task every day. But that is a far cry from what you're doing in training. You are certainly not in those positions. Your job is to like mow the lawn, do push-ups, stand in line, make sure your rack is made, you're uniform is crisp, all of those things. And uh, mm-hmm. so I, I certainly don't want anyone to have any delusions of grandeur that like, you know, you go and you go to basic training and then right after that, you're, you know, Ike Eisenhower. Like th- there's a lot that happens between those two steps. Right, right. Um, but you did you did both at the same time or for some amount of time, right? Work at Blue Cross Blue Shield and be in the Army Reserve. Yes, the, the week was spent doing, uh, uh, venture capital investments for Blue Cross Blue Shield. At that okay. point, I transitioned away from the uh, uh, strategy arm and towards the sort of like more venture aspect. Um, and uh, and then the weekends were spent doing army reserve work. So I worked in a uh, military intelligence battalion that specialized in counterintelligence and human intelligence. Okay. Did you Did you enjoy the transition to I guess being an investor and VC. Yes, I, I loved it. I, I worked for a man named Bill Georges, who just has such a natural knack for diving into these kind of things. And he not only taught me all of the skills that I know that I think I've since succeeded on, but the mindset that it takes to be really, really good at this job. I think Bill was very good at connecting with people while at the same time, um, proving himself as a trusted advisor, right? Like nobody wants to take money from somebody who doesn't turn $1 into $10. If all you're doing is taking money, you should go to a bank. Like you should only take venture capital money, right? If it's added value. And Bill basically showed me how in a 30 minute meeting, you can prove that you can add that value. And a couple of concepts that he would really harp on is 
right, meeting preparation. Uh, in VC, the, the common term is prepared mind. So nobody in a pitch should tell you basically more than 20% of what you knew coming into it. And if they're educating you too much on a space, then it's unfair to the entrepreneur who is talking to you because you haven't done your homework in advance. Right. And right. then you're not going to be added value. And so th I think those are the big things. And I'm sorry, that was a very long-winded way of answering your otherwise straightforward question. <laughs> no, no, it's great. No, I, I appreciate it. And so on the other side, what were your responsibilities as a military intel officer? Uh, my level. job was to look after my platoon, and then I was uh, put in charge as the XO of my company. And so uh, we would do everything from uh, within within the reserves. You're basically untrained, uh, trained, and then proficient. And uh, that calendar happens over the course of like 12 to 18 months, and it's your task to basically make sure that the readiness of the unit is maintained. And that's everything from making sure that they're good at their intel skills to making sure that people are physically fit, you know, keeping up with all of their different other sort of things. So it was an interesting balance, I think, uh, of being able to work on the core Intel skill set while also just basically being like a manager. Uh, and I, right. I, I love the job. It was really awesome. I had a great unit. Mm -hmm. And you also, during the time you got deployed to the Middle East, right? Uh, yes, in 2017, I deployed to originally Afghanistan, uh, and then moved from Afghanistan with the same mission set to Iraq. How did that opportunity come about? Uh, I had had pretty good performance when I was in Intel school and was fortunate to uh, get some looks from some, some people who were involved in uh, aspects of the military that I found very interesting. And so we basically began a dialogue during that time. I was fortunate to be uh, selected for, you know, the unit and the, and, and the skill set that I wanted to be a part of. And then, you know, um, from then on, it was really more of like a preparation exercise. So, you know, you do a bunch of things, like a bunch of pre-trainings, making sure you're ready for deployment. And that was interesting. Now my reserve job went from like, you know, the more managerial stuff to like the, like getting ready to go fight. So flew around the country to different mm -hmm. sites, to like make sure we're prepped. It was awesome. Man. Yeah, that's great. And so was that experience at all, like what you expected it? to be? Um, I have a fantastic spouse. My wife is awesome. And I thought it was going to be a lot harder than it was. Uh, and it wasn't as hard because she was incredibly supportive of me during that time. She galvanized a bunch of other people to be very supportive of me during that time. I deployment was fantastic. It's not without its hard days. Like you're, you're doing hard stuff. Like, like you can imagine, you know, I think there's definitely lonely times. Uh, there's sort of like kinetic aspects of it that are, uh, fortunately very different from regular life in the United States, but my right. wife always kept me grounded. She was always available. She was always awesome. And I know it was a very difficult time for her. So, um, I am certainly indebted to her for the amount of support she gave me to make that easy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> and so what were your biggest takeaways from that whole experience? It's, um, I think that there's a tacit element of teamwork chase that goes beyond like, uh, when we say teamwork in the corporate world, we say like, I know what you're doing. And so I trust you uh, in the military. It's more like transparency. Exactly. Right. Right. Like I, I saw your report. It was good. I trust. Therefore I trust Chase. Like, in the military, it is more like, I don't know what you're doing, but I trust you. 
And when you're on those teams and like when you're in some kind of like capacity where like there are these like very dangerous situations coming up, you don't have time to sit there and do the the normal corporate rigmarole of kind of like, let's make sure that like I know everything and that we've like, you know, crossed our T's and put the right TPS report cover sheets on. Uh, I hope that office space reference wasn't lost on anyone. But uh, uh, it, it is more about like that, that mesh. And I think that's why when you see vets coming together and we're talking to each other, it's like you've reunited like old uh, siblings because there is so much unspoken in our trust of one another that that is what makes the camaraderie real is that the job only works if I absolutely trust you. Not because I am a better rifleman than you or a better corpsman or whatever, but because I know that you're the best rifleman or the best corpsman or that even if you're not, you will do that job to the best of your abilities before you let it impact me. And I thought that was probably the biggest takeaway coming from that. Interesting. And do you think that concept of, of trust and teamwork can translate well to the corporate world in that environment? Yeah, de- definitely. I, I, I think that th- th- this is certainly like not an indictment of, uh, you know, just regular like corporate environments, but I, I do think more often than not, they fall into these sort of traps, not more often than not, but, but often uh, they will fall into that trap of this kind of like quasi team element that I think implies a false sense of camaraderie. I think though the best civilian teams operate in that exact same way, which is where like you have absolute autonomy and the job is for you to communicate intent on your role because you're the closest to the information and you're able to act on that information overly hierarchical structures which is what you see at a lot of these places like uh that's where they fail or 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 i think places with perhaps too many controls that it um that it just makes it impossible to operate and i think that's where you incentivize these people who just kind of like go in clock in clock out and they know that if, if right. you do something wrong, it's worse than if you just don't do anything. Right, right. And so after that whole experience, you then joined the Defense Innovation Unit? Yeah. Um, I, I would say like an, another piece, by the way, Chase, uh, uh, where I've been extremely lucky in my life is I've been able to recruit and maintain mentors pretty well. Okay. Uh, I've been extremely fortunate that these incredible mentors have been willing to do that. Right. Like, uh, I, I think that is the one piece where I'd say this is really more luck than skill. Uh, a man named Raj Shah and another one named Matt Goldman flew to Iraq when I was there at the time I was, uh, you know, trying to acquire this, uh, uh, uh this piece of software for the unit that I was associated with. Cause I thought that it would help us do our job better. Uh, these guys sort of caught wind of that entire effort. And I spoke to them, you know, we're all in civilian clothes. Nobody really knows who's who. It turns out they're both very senior ranking people within DOD. Um, you know, but after that, we spent the day together in Iraq and, and you know, basically got a call that was like, okay, when you come back, like, uh, come to us. Uh, at the time, I had already applied to a bunch of business schools. I was lucky to get into Harvard. Uh, I knew I was going to go to Harvard. And so basically for the period between when I demobilized, which is what we call in the reserves when we're, when we're uh, coming back from deployment, to when I matriculated at HBS, I mean, literally till the day before HBS, I worked at the Defense Innovation Unit. And that was uh, split between time out of the Pentagon and out of uh, DIU headquarters in uh, Mountain View, California. Interesting. 
And for the people listening, maybe provide a quick overview of what the DIU is. Yeah, uh, um, DIU, basically defense procurement has historically gone towards large prime contractors, names you know, Lockheed, Boeing, et cetera. Uh, the future of warfare is being fought in domains of which uh, smaller upstarts are going to be more competitive. And the Defense Innovation Unit's background is to basically bring on more non-traditional contractors towards selling to the government and help them sell to the government. They basically use a rapid acquisition mechanism uh, that helps them do that. I should caveat, I am not speaking on this podcast in a capacity representing the Defense Innovation Unit. The best source of information on them will always be to go to the website uh, right. or to, yeah, to speak to them directly. But, but I think that that's a pretty fair overview in my opinion. Okay. And what areas within tech excite you the most from a defense standpoint? So I was a, uh, a healthcare investor at Blue Cross Blue Shield. My current role right now uh, at Shields Capital is as a healthcare investor. And so naturally, I was sort of erring more towards the, uh, the area of like human performance, sort of quasi healthcare, what is going on to the actual body of the soldier, sailor, marine, airman, et cetera. And, and that is what I worked on uh, at the outset when I was at DIU. Uh, the portfolio is called human systems. And so working on some really cool tech that maybe makes you like remember things better, run faster, uh, you know, uh, heal yourself faster, things like that. Interesting. Okay. So currently getting to today, you're a healthcare investor at Shields Capital, like you mentioned, right? Yeah. Okay. And where is that based? Uh, that is here in Massachusetts. So, okay. so when I was at HBS, I, uh, I, I did uh, every business school student does an internship. I was fortunate to get an internship at KKR, which is a, a big private equity firm. Mm -hmm. And uh, I worked particularly for General David Petraeus, sure. uh, which was awesome because if you remember sort of back to that, uh, that article that I was talking about, that address to the, the class at West Point, one of the people that the author talks about of being sort of like an exemplar of what it means to be a successful leader in the military is General David Petraeus. So uh, he and I, I was fortunate again to have formed a relationship with him uh, where he was a mentor of mine. He has always been extremely helpful, extremely supportive. And over the course of the summer, basically allowed me to come under his wing and um, uh, uh, help them better define a defense investment thesis that they could execute on at KKR. And that job gave me exposure to the founders of KKR other amazing members of the team as an organization it's just like it felt like a special forces unit in so far as i could not find a single person who was not excellent at what they did there that's amazing that sounds like an incredible internship <laughs> it, 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 it honestly chase it was pretty awesome but it was uh you know uh very entrepreneurial uh eventually kind of left that had a lot of conversations with the folks at kkr and by the time that I met the person who, would, uh, who is the, the namesake behind Shields Capital, Jack Shields, who is an incredible entrepreneur, uh, I was actually raising my own fund. So my intent here was like seeing the model, meeting these amazing guys I at see. KKR. Right, they were awesome, but, but at the same time I was like, but like they loved what they were doing because they went out and they went for it. And I thought that that was something really, really uh, incredible. And now was the time to do something entrepreneurial right when COVID hit, met Jack Shields. Jack Shields wanted to start up a fund as well. Jack Shields has the fortunate position of having significantly more money than I do. So his <laughs> ability to execute on that vision is much easier. 
And right. he has been a, a yet another incredible mentor of mine in helping me uh, both grow, but also be able to sort of be the best version of myself. And that, that's what we're trying to build here at Shields Capital. Awesome. So getting into these last few questions here, what's, what's next for you? Like what's the next big goal you're looking towards in the next few years? Uh, Shields Capital right now is my focus. We are in a, uh, a pretty critical phase as an upstart fund where we need to like define a lot of things, have a lot of conversations about what we want to do and where we really are in the market. We have a pretty defined thesis. Uh, fingers crossed, uh, you may be catching me right before we make one of our, our first investments. There's a lot, of, a lot of interesting things happening right now. Mm -hmm. um, Jack has been an incredible leader in getting me also to be, uh, to be invested in this job outside of any of the financial aspects that compel most people to do an investing role. And I want this to succeed because Shields Capital could be an incredibly special organization, drive true change in healthcare in addition to returns. And, and, and honestly, like Jack is an amazing guy and I, I want him to succeed in this vision too. That's great. I was in a very similar position um, when I was in private equity. I was actually the first employee hired at um, Equality Asset Management under Tom Roberts, who was a former managing partner at, at Summit Partners. So I can definitely empathize with the, with the stage they are in right now. It's definitely very oh, exciting. That's awesome. Equality is a good shop. I've heard a lot about them. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So with all that you've done and accomplished so far, have you ever burned out? That's a good question. I don't think so. It's just a function of when I've hit my limit at a given period. So I don't know if I'd call it burning out, right? Like if you mm -hmm. spend a, a Saturday where you like unplug, you turn off your phone and it's like, look, I need to sleep then. And if you caught somebody at that period of time, you would be like, that dude's burnt out. Like he has been watching uh, uh, Tiger King for the last eight hours. This is not the sign of a functioning member of society. <laughs> um, but then the next day you could be waking up at 5.30 and kind of like getting rolling and being in your sort of uh, your right. normal cadence. I would say that that happens pretty frequently. There's often times that I need to withdraw and be sort of sitting by myself and just reflect. But I don't think I should, I or really anybody else should be so self-critical as to say that that is being burnt out. That's just sort of a natural aspect of needing to recharge. Right. And it also sounds like you were maybe self-aware enough to kind of catch the times where you were getting towards that limit or really pushing the limits to then take a step back and not just charge ahead and really take that time for yourself. I mean, I feel like that's what you need to do, right? Like you, mm -hmm. you, you're meeting all kinds of interesting people on this podcast. Like, have you ever found anyone who doesn't need to sort of take time away and, and relax or anyone who's able to just be the uh, energizer bunny and just keep going? <laughs> uh, no, other than my dad, probably. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, yeah, no, it's definitely more so the case. Yeah. Yeah. What does your daily routine look like? Uh, I think uh, my most productive hours are always in the morning. So I like to wake up early. Uh, I think right before this, you and I were talking about my kind of like erratic sleep schedule. Uh, I like to go to bed relatively early. I don't really like drinking. Uh, don't really like any other kind of substances because it sort of gets in the way of my ability to sleep. Uh, you know, so that's really just like not drinking. Uh, and uh, for better or worse, sometimes wake up in the middle of the night, want to hammer out some work of, of some compelling insight that came to me in my sleep 
and then, uh, you know, wake up early again and make sure that we're sort of like making the best of those productive hours. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I have really gotten into is sort of like this regular, not sort of got into, sort of consistently been into is like a, a regular period of like discomfort. So whether this is going to be something small, but like taking a cold shower, making sure you're like knocking out a hundred pushups, something kind of weird like that, right? Like small, right. but basically this sense of like presence, because if you do something every morning that you kind of don't want to do every day becomes a little bit more memorable rather than just being like on autopilot. And then honestly, I got into meditation when I was in Afghanistan and that is a critical part of my morning routine. Not, not a shareholder in Headspace, just a huge fan. I use the Headspace app and it is <laughs> Yeah, fantastic. I've used it too. Oh my goodness. It is, it's incredible. I do that every day. I, I mean, what do you think? I think, it's, I think it's fantastic, especially if you're someone who's looking to get into meditation. I think it's an awesome way to, to start. Yeah, right? I mean, and it, like, it, it just it just recharges you much faster, right? I think everybody who's kind of like trying to drive at light speed, like you are, like your dad is, like all the other guys that you're meeting on here, myself notwithstanding, is like mm -hmm. everybody's trying to get a million things done. Uh, and I feel like meditation is a way by which at the very least, you can at least be comfortable with not getting a million things done. At the best, be able to get a million things done and actually appreciate it while it's happening. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. And so as is the, the name of the podcast, the Driving Force podcast, what do you think has been your driving force throughout your life? I should have done better preparation to have a pithier answer to that question and seen it coming. Um, <laughs> I would say the driving force behind my life is that I have been incredibly lucky to have an incredibly fortunate set of circumstances given to me. I have always had a team of people who support me uh, right now, I have a wonderful life, I, a wife. Uh, I, I would say my life is pretty great too. I'm very appreciative. Um, <laughs> I've had amazing mentors. I've had people who really, really care about me and who have helped me get to the next level. And my driving force is to make sure that that is all worth it for them. I don't want them to look and think that their time was wasted in helping support me and that something extraordinary didn't come of it. But I mean this with no false modesty. It takes a village. There was absolutely no element of anything that I did where somebody was not doing something thankless to help me be able to maintain that. And I am extremely appreciative. Awesome. And then lastly, before we wrap up, what career advice or parting words of wisdom would you like to leave the, the recent grad or young professional listening to this? Um, oh man, this is such a good, uh, th that, 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 that's such an exciting question. Um, I would say you actually don't need to get paid as much money as you think you do. Do the job or at least be on the career path of the job that you would do for free. And I got just as much enjoyment from getting paid $24,000 as a specialist doing push-ups in Fort Benning, Georgia, because I knew it was on the path to where I wanted to be, as I have from jobs where, it, I, you know, that hasn't been the case. So do that. Like, do, do the thing that you would do for free. Right. Awesome. That's a great place to end it. Alex, thanks again for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you very much, Chase. Look forward to staying in touch. I'll talk to you soon. 
Yeah. Um, before you go, is LinkedIn the best place for people to get in touch if they want to connect with you? Uh, yes. Awesome. And you all can also visit my website, chaserosa.com, and follow me on Instagram at chaserosa4 for updates on new episodes. Thanks to everyone who's listening, and see you next time.